0: May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I want to invite you to join me this morning in a story in the Gospel of John. If you will open your Bible to Gospel of John chapter 1. Our sermon text will come from John 1, 19 to 34. If you are able, please stand and hear God's holy word. The word of the Lord says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, John 1, 19 to 34 reads, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. They had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who reigns before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. May God add His blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His Word. And all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. In the movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou? Three escaped cons encounter an old black man on a flat rail car. He is rhythmically pumping along. The, the track, pumping the long seesaw handle, moving the cart down the railroad tracks. And as the flat car draws close and even slows down, one of the cons says, mind if we join you, old timer? And the old man says, join me, my sons. And the three men clamber aboard, and the old man resumes pumping, and down the tracks they go. Immediately the, th- the cons realize that the old man is blind. So one of the cons asks him, you work for the railroad grandpa? And the old man says, I work for no man. Another says, you got a name do you? The old man says, I have no name. And the third one says, well then that might be the reason you've had difficulty finding gainful employment. <laughs> The old man interrupts him and says, You seek a great fortune, you three who are now in chains. You will find a fortune, though it will not be the one you seek. But first, first you must travel a long and difficult road, a road fraught with peril uh-huh, and pregnant with adventure, and you shall see things wonderful to tell and oh, so many startlements. I cannot say how long this road shall be, but fear not the obstacles in your path, for faith has vouchsafed your reward. And though the road may wind, and yea, your hearts grow weary, still shall you follow the way, even unto your salvation. Well, later on, the three escaped to get enough to argue about whether the old blind man was a prophet, a psychic or just an ignorant old man. The connections between that scene and our sermon text should be obvious, but if they're not, they will become obvious as we make our way through the story. For in our story, we also meet a strange man. He is a young man named John who comes from the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron. And everyone around him is trying to figure out who he is or what he was. Although he was the son of a priest, it is unknown if he was actually trained for the priesthood or ever became ordained. Probably not. But what is known is that John was set apart by God to be a prophet. Now, everyone knew that John came from a different kind of family. He was the only son of an elderly couple. His father was a priest who claimed to see an angel in the temple. And that experience left him mute and unable to talk for about 40 weeks. That is, until John was born. And the first words he said were, his name is John. From his infancy on, John was brought up like a Nazarite. Normally, only adult men or women were freely able to choose to take the Nazarite vow for themselves, and they would set the period of time to do that. But God commanded John's parents to take the vow for him, even while he was an infant. And so John grew up as a Nazarite. Now for those of you who have forgotten what a Nazarite is, a Nazarite simply means that all the days of John's life, he had to keep himself from eating anything made with grapes. And he had to keep himself from drinking anything made with grapes. So that included wine and strong drinks and even grape juice. So if John were with us today, he would not be able to take the Lord's Supper. So all the days of his life, he had to stay away from grapes. But another thing is, he had to keep his hair long. And the reason is, because he was not able, as a Nazarite, to... Take clippers or scissors or razors to touch his hair. Now he's about 30 years old when he starts preaching. Imagine how long his hair was after 30 years. When he moves out of his parents' house, he did not move into an apartment or buy a house the way some of you did when you left your parents' house, Uh, especially those of you who are uh, from the city. He went out and lived in the desert. And he lived like survivor man. Even though John was the the son of a priest, he did not dress or act like other priests, Um, John wore strange clothes. So he's a young, long-haired desert hermit. Get this in your mind. He's wearing a rough camel hair garment munching on grasshoppers that are dipped in honey, and he turns down fire water like a fundamentalist during Prohibition. Now like some priest kids or PKs, John was wild, but he was not wild in any of the stereotypical ways you expect. He's not this mild-mannered pastor, but he's a wild-eyed prophet. And the reason I'm taking the time to tell you all of that backstory about John is because I want you to understand that John was considered a very strange dude by his contemporaries. I mean, we think the guys from Duck Dynasty are odd. John the Baptist makes them look like normal people. (laughs) The religious leaders are concerned about John for many reasons, but mainly for his life and doctrine. They know that he's a son of a priest. And it's likely that they think he's making them look bad. And so they send some priests and Levites. Some of the guys might have even known John's father. And they show up to perform an intervention of sorts. They want to know, especially given his family history, if he thinks that he's something special. I mean, his dad did see an angel in the temple. Maybe there's something unique about John. Is he the Christ? Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet? Or does he think he's any of these things? And whether you think they're legitimate or not, they are valid questions. Are you the Christ? Christ was just a fancy way of saying King. The priests and Levites knew the scriptures, and the scriptures said that the Christ. The king would come from David's line. And when he came, he's going to build a house in God's name. And that house, was, that house was going to endure. And God was going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that would be the end of Roman occupation. It would also be the start of Jewish restoration. But there's no way John could be the Christ because he didn't come from David's line. He came from Aaron's line. He came from priest class. And so John rightly said, I'm not the Christ. So he passes the first exam. They go to the second exam. Are you Elijah? Now the scripture said that Elijah the prophet would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest God come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. So everyone's on pins and needles waiting for this Elijah figure to come. Since Elijah the prophet was taken away in chariots of fire and never died, many people expected him to come back again in the flesh. Now, why would they ask John if he's Elijah? Well, there are a lot of similarities. John dressed like Elijah, and he lived in the desert like Elijah, and he spent time around the Jordan River like Elijah, and so he reminded people of Elijah the prophet. Some people actually thought he might be the second coming of Elijah in the flesh. But John confessed that he was not Elijah in the flesh. Not even a reincarnation of Elijah. He simply came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Third exam. Are you the prophet? Now the prophet was the prophet of all prophets. The Scripture said that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command. Now, before John the Baptist came out preaching... God had been silent for about 400 years, meaning that God had not spoken to His people through a prophet for 400 years. When John shows up, this gets everyone's attention, especially since he looks like Elijah and he sounds like Moses. People thought he might actually be the prophet that God promised to raise up from among them. But then John confessed, I'm not the prophet. And you can imagine the priests and the Levites, on the one hand, being totally relieved that John was not the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. In other words, at least he was not some wacko who was out trying to spark a revolution. But on the other hand, you can imagine that some of them were probably disappointed if he's not the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet That means that they're going to have to keep on hoping and waiting for the Savior to come. Now, in my imagination, I see the scene unfold like this. They have the exams. The priests and the Levites shrug their shoulders. They turn to go back to the Pharisees who had sent them. And as they turn to leave, John confesses, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. by stopping their tracks. Maybe some of them felt goosebumps on their flesh as they remembered Isaiah's words. They knew what that meant, so they turned back to John. They stopped in their tracks. They understand that in this moment, John is claiming to be the forerunner of the Christ. The one who comes right before the King. John is echoing the words of Isaiah, the prophet, and he's actually calling on the priests and the Levites and everyone else within earshot to prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert, a highway for our God, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, even the un- uneven ground shall become level and the rough places as a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now some of you recognize those words because those words were used in the Civil Rights era. During the Civil Rights era, Martin Luther King Jr. cited this text in his epic speech, I Have a Dream. And as noble as his socio-political dream was, His dream actually pales in comparison to God's dream spoken by the prophets. In God's dream, the voice cries out, prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord who is coming to comfort his people, not by political activism, not by passing more rules and regulations, but by revealing the glory of God to all flesh without partiality, without favoritism. And God's dream goes on to say, all men wither and their power fades, but the Word made flesh stands forever. It is that dream that John the Baptist was echoing. He was preparing the way for the Lord. He was doing what all Christian preachers are called to do. What I'm trying to do right now, Pointing his hearers away from himself to Jesus by proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus. He's echoing Isaiah. He's echoing Moses. He's echoing Elijah. He's pointing people to Jesus. On a side note, all pastors... Prophets and priests ought to know and believe that the only way to prepare the way for the Lord is to proclaim the beauty and the sovereignty and the majesty of the Lord. It is not to produce a bunch of silly activities and religious busy work. John is calling on Israel to prepare the way for the Lord for themselves. And I echo that call for you today. Prepare the way for the Lord in your life. Now, John called on Israel to be baptized so that they would be washed and dressed and ready to go when the Christ arrived. And that only makes sense, doesn't it? Think about your own life. In in, in your life, you know that when you have an important meeting with someone, you get all of your stuff together before the meeting starts. At least you should. And if you're having guests over for dinner, you prep by cleaning the house and gathering all the food and drinks before the guests arrive. And if you get dirty playing or working outside, then you wash your hands and wash your face before you come sit at the table to eat. John is telling Israel, prepare the way for the Lord. Wash up. Get dressed. Be ready. He's on His way. Now it's at this point in the story that the priest and the Levites change their line of questioning from, Who are you? to, Why do you baptize? Again, this is a valid question. In the Old Testament, which the priest and Levites knew very well, They saw that baptisms called ceremonial washings back then were ordinarily performed by priests at the temple. And even though John was the son of a priest, again, it's not clear whether he was actually ordained as a priest. And so everyone's kind of scratching their heads about this. Now, the religious leaders did not know what you know about John. We know and believe that John was called and ordained by God as a prophet and that he was authorized to perform this water baptism by the true and living God. But the priests and Levites didn't know that. All they saw was a wild man who claimed to be a desert prophet standing in a river administering baptism to crowds of people who were going out to see him. And so what they want to know is who gave you the right to do this? They certainly didn't authorize it. They hadn't ordained Him. They don't recognize what He's doing, so they're trying to get their minds around it. You see, in their time, no one administered sacraments or performed sacred rites unless they were authorized by God to do so. Now that's hard for us to imagine given the cultural context in which we live because in our time there are many people who think they have the right to do these things and they authorize themselves to do these things without any regard for the teachings of Scripture or the traditions of God's people. Again, I hate to think, I hate to think about all the chaos and confusion that that kind of mess has caused the Christian community. But it's the kind of messy situation that the religious leaders wanted to nip in the bud in their day. And I actually commend them for their line of questioning for John. They were doing due diligence. They're trying to make sure that this crazy looking guy was not some kind of theological wacko. What they're missing though is that John, the son of a priest, is performing baptisms away from the temple not because he's defying God, but because he's been sent by God as a prophet. And so he's acting more like a prophet than a priest. Let me tell you why it's significant that John is at the Jordan baptizing where he is. Okay? It just so happens, it just so happens that John was baptizing people at the same place where Joshua and the priests and all of Israel crossed over from the desert into the Promised Land. And it just so happens that this is the same place where Elijah the prophet had crossed the river with his apprentice before he was taken away into heaven by a whirlwind and chariots of fire. And it just so happens that the Jordan River was also the same river where the Gentile, the non-Jew, Naaman the leper, was sent to be baptized seven times. And you recall that in that story, he was washed clean and his skin became like a newborn baby. So it's significant that John is baptizing at this place in the Jordan at this time. But the main reason John is sent to baptize in that place at that time was so that Jesus, the God-man, the Word made flesh, might be revealed to all of God's people. Now, like his preaching, his baptism also points away from himself and prepares the way for the Lord. He baptized Jesus, but in John's gospel, we don't get to see Jesus' baptism. But we do get to hear John's testimony about the things that happened on that day. John says that he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove, and that it was a sign for John that Jesus was the one he was looking for. Now, before that moment, John did not know that his cousin Jesus was the Christ and was the prophet. It was only when the Spirit came and rested on Jesus that John knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And it's from that moment on that John the Baptist becomes Jesus's hype man. Now, you know what a hype man is, right? A hype man is the person at the concert who helps get the crowds hyped and amped and pumped before and during the show. A hype man is a figure who plays a central role supporting the main group by making his own interventions. He's generally aiming at the crowd, hyping up the crowd, drawing attention not to himself. If he's a good hype man, he's drawing attention to the main artist. John the Baptist is a hype man for Jesus. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's simply hyping Jesus up in the eyes and ears of the people. And that brings us to the crux of the matter. The day after John was examined by the religious leaders, he saw Jesus walking towards him, and he said to anyone and to everyone within earshot, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. He ranks above me. I come after him. He must become more, I must become less. He's the savior of the world. I gotta confess. He's a hype man. And you can imagine in our day and age, Jesus would, John would be saying, Go to Jesus, go to Jesus, go, go, go. He's trying to get everyone to center on Jesus. So he's pumping up the crowd by witnessing about the Lord. And he's prepping the crowd by washing them with water. This is how John prepared the way for the word made flesh. The fact that John was baptizing at the Jordan was significant for many reasons. Some that I mentioned, and now three more that I want to tell you. It means this. It means that God is drawing near to deliver his people from a spiritual wasteland and bring them back home again. It also means that God was drawing near to cleanse the unclean from their filth and their death and their sins and to give them fresh new life. It means that God is on mission in the true and better Joshua to conquer the land and to capture the hearts and the minds of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that wasn't just true then, it's also true now. It's not true just for them, it's also true for you. John the Baptist called his generation to prepare the way for the Lord. And today, even now at this very moment, I'm echoing his cry and calling you to prepare the way for the Lord in your life and in our community. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, I must call all of you who are weary and dirty and unclean and lost and broken and ruined to come down to the river to pray, to be washed clean. To make way for the Lord. As the prophet said, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as red as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now, if you want to be white as snow, you might ask, How? Is that even possible? What must I do? What can I do? You will not become white as snow by your good intentions, or your deeds, or your efforts. And you will not become white as snow by trying harder or feeling better or by doing better. You can only become white as snow if you behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think of that word, behold. It simply requires you to gaze, to look, to stare, to see who Jesus is. Now this is unheard of in John's generation and it's barely heard of in our generation. How does a sinner become clean? By looking to Jesus and seeing him for who he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What sin? Your sin. Your sin. Your anger. Your porn addiction your lying, your deceiving, your selfishness, your pride, your sexual confusion, your manipulation and control, your gossip, your bad mouthing, your disobedience to parents, your rebellion and pride, your disbelief, your bitterness, your fill in the blank. The Lamb of God comes to take away All your sin. Even that sin that you're thinking of that no one else knows about but you and God. Even that sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away all your sins and griefs and sorrows and carried them in His body on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. So all your sin and all mine was executed at the cross, destroyed in God's wrath, and washed away in the life-giving blood of the Lamb. For your sake, God treated the Lamb who bore your sins as a sinner. And at the cross, God showed Him no mercy as He poured out His wrath and justice on Him. But for Christ's sake, God treats you as saints and no longer as sinners. He shows you mercy without wrath. For by the Lamb's wounds, we are healed. Why did God do such a thing? The Apostle John explains it this way. God is love. In His love, God revealed to us His only Son and sent Him into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the Passover Lamb whose smeared blood on the frame of your heart keeps the destroyer from harming you. He is the atoning sacrifice who shed blood, shields you from God's wrath and shelters you in God's mercy and satisfies God for you in every way. He is the substitutionary lamb who gave up his life in your place for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul and body. The Lord Jesus Christ is headed your way. He's coming. How will you prepare yourself to meet Him? What changes will you make? What habits will you break? What will you do to center your life on Him? How will you prepare the way for the Lord Jesus in your heart and in your life? Will you turn and look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you've not turned from your sins and trusted in Him... I urge you to do so now. And if you've never been baptized with water, I urge you to do so as quickly as possible without delay. And if you've never called on the name of the Lord to save you, I urge you to do that now. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I cannot say how long this road shall be. Fear not the obstacles in your path. For grace and faith have vouchsafed your reward. And though the road may wind, and yea, though your hearts grow weary, still shall you follow the way, even unto your salvation.